This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Little Richard, the voice behind his 1955 hit, passed away this year at the age of 87 from bone cancer. He was a legend who defied norms in the music industry and in his lifestyle. There's a new biography out about him. It's called The Big Life of Little Richard. It's by author Mark Rabowski, and he joins me now to talk about the book. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. So you write in your book that Tutti Frutti marked the functional birth of rock and roll. How did it do that? Well, at the time, there was no real rock and roll. It was just sort of a carryover from the big band and blues era of the 40s. In fact, when Richard recorded Tutti Frutti, rock and roll still was not the official title of this new music. Everybody knows about Alan Freed, Alan Freed, the great disc jockey out of Cleveland then, later out of New York, who applied the term to rock and roll music. But that came a little later. So Richard was really... Uh, he, he was really in his own element. He was like, you know, in his own field of play, his field of battle. And that's really what made Tutti Frutti so different. It was so different than whatever was out there that it was either going to flop miserably and never be hurt, the sound never hurt again, or it was going to cause a ruckus. And with Richard, <laughs> it, it had to be a ruckus because he never settled for anything less than a ruckus. So when he went in and he cut this song in New Orleans with the musicians that had played for Fats Domino. And in fact, the record that we hear today and we've heard since 1955 was the first take of Tutti Frutti, the, fir- the very first take. It, w- it went so well, and even the mistakes were so good <laughs> and, and contributed to the overall dimension of the song that they went with it as the first Little Richard singer. They had no idea it was going to be even even recorded that day. But... When it went back, when Bumps Blackwell took it back to L.A. to Art Roop, the president of Specialty Records, they knew they had something on their hands that was almost unspeakable. And as it turned out, they were right. So you started writing this biography before Little Richard's death. What inspired you to write a book about him? And what do you find most fascinating about him? Well, the question is, what isn't fascinating about Little Richard? Because everything about his life, and I think that's one of the things I tried to convey in the book, was his life was sort of, was like one giant performance art, like one great artwork on the street, you know, performed by Little Richard. Because everything had to be top quality, but also unforgettable for other reasons. And uh, that, that was what he put into Tutti Frutti. As soon as you put the needle on the record or, you know, I don't know if many people actually even know what that means. <laughs> but if you listen to the song in any way, it immediately grabs you. It immediately grabs you all over the body, inside and out. And that was what he had discovered. And it changed rock and roll so suddenly that within two years, Little Richard was the top artist of this new rock and roll, <clears throat> which at the title of which had been applied by then. And he was starring in all the rock and roll movies and he was getting all the, all the publicity. It was just over two years. And that was when he decided he had to get out of the business, which is the first of, of a couple of retreats that Richard made from the business. And I think what I put in the book <clears throat> sort of re- reconfirmed the suspicion a lot of people had then that he really wasn't 
uh, retreating for religious sake, as he said, although that was certainly part of his whole life and his, his childhood and all that. But he wanted to control his music the way he never could. And he found out the hard way that black artists of his of his of his era and his age had absolutely zero power to make any decisions in the business. And that really carried over the rest of his life, that that resentment. So, yeah, he left the music industry a few times to become a minister. Um, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, you write in the book, you say, black performers lived on a different kind of plantation in the 1950s, bound within the straight jacket of race music being denied full mainstream acceptance, meant record sales would be limited, revival dependent on white disc jockeys hearing the call of the future, while Little Richard racked up 14 top 10 hits on the Billboard R&B chart, including three number ones, Long Tall Sally. Rip it up. And Lucille. I asked my friends about her, but all they knew was Lucille. He notched only two top 10 hits on the Billboard Top 100. But at the same time, you know, despite this racial divide, Little Richard was still very successful. What do you think allowed him to be so successful? Well, I think it was because whenever Richard would come out with a record, his own company would, didn't give him an album until he was out of the business so for the first time in 58. This is, this is what black artists had to go through. I call it rock and roll's uh, original sin. It was that the people who actually made rock and roll who had taken it from its blues roots and actually used those same roots in, in recording all these great records that we know today, uh, pivotal to the growth of this whole this whole music industry, never could never were given a fair share of the of the financial results. They never were given any kind of respect. Little Richard was never on Ed Sullivan. He was never on American Bandstand until 1964. So he wasn't, but when Elvis went on Sullivan, he sang really Teddy. He sang one of Little Richard's songs that Little Richard couldn't, was never invited to sing himself on these, on these TV programs, these gigantic you know, make or break TV program. Run to the corner, pick up my sweetie pie, see the rock and roll, baby, she's the apple of my eye. I'm So Little Richard had quite the stage presence. You know, he wore, you know, colorful, elaborate outfits on stage. You know, he'd even get mad at his band when they would wear colorful clothes on stage or smiled like he felt like he was they were upstaging him. And like Little Richard would even fine his band, like charge them if they didn't call him king. Can you talk a little bit more about his stage presence on stage, but also just what his presence was off stage? Yes, actually, uh, that came a little later when he forbid his band to dress up like him. This was in the 60s and even into the 70s when he, was, uh, when he wasn't having hits. And his stage act was his act. That's where he made his money and he kept himself uh, at the top. Believe it or not, during the era of Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison and, uh, and Jimi Hendrix, in whose band he had played, 
he was still the top build and top salary artist in all of rock and roll, believe that or not, in 1969, 1970. But in the 50s, he actually did require his band to, to dress like him, wear the makeup, wear the pancake makeup, wear the, the hair piled high on their heads, because it, it was a great gig the way Richard played it. And, I, and I, I went on in the book about this whole sexual identity of his, which I think has been has been misunderstood because of Richard. I can get into that if you'd like a little later. But they had to look like him, and uh, they they insisted for years that they had to do this basically in the South, so that they could convince the rednecks in the South who came to these concerts that they weren't out to steal those rednecks women, <laughs> so that they they came out almost prancing, almost mincing, uh, you know, in, in a parody of being gay. And it helped them get along. It helped them play these clubs to integrated audiences. And little Richard stayed in integrated hotels in the South. So he knew what he was doing. And he also, like Liberace, he knew how to play that sexual identity card without ever having to admit that he was gay until years later, at which point he then started turning against the, the whole concept of, of gayness. It was a very complicated thing with Richard, but it all was based on how to get the how to get the audience, how to get them to move their feet and not question who he who he was and who he was pretending to be. And that's the way his band, the Upsetters, played it for years and became quite famous on their own, even after little Richard didn't use them anymore in the 70s. In fact, that was how Otis Redding came to be. He played a gig with the Upsetters and that propelled him to his career. So Richard was at the base. He was at he he was the functional norm of a lot that was going on, even after he wasn't having hits. Speaking of his sexuality, you know, he he seemed to have a very open and fluid sexuality, you know, but, you know, at one point he would denounce homosexuality, yet he had been arrested a few times for homosexual acts. He also called himself omnisexual, saying he was had attractions to both men and women, you know, but outside of being a flamboyant performer, like did his fans and audience ever pick up on his sexuality or I mean, did they even care or did it even matter? I, you know, I, I, I'm of the age where I could barely remember Richard when I was young, but I remember that when he came on, the parents would always say, there's that gay guy, there's that gay black guy, you know, and the kids would say, gay what? I mean, well, what does that even mean? You know, they, they, they just didn't care. It didn't matter to them because his songs, they, they, they were functionally bisexual. There was never any hint in his song that he was singing to a guy. It always was, you know, the, the, the girl with the jeans and, you know, the girl that I loved and the girl that I chase and all this kind of stuff. Because he knew how to he knew how to play it so that there would never be any questions about him. There would just be, oh, here's that colorful guy, you know, with the crazy outfits. And, you know, the, he would mince around and he would he would talk in a gay in a, in a gay manner without ever having to address it. And I, I to me. This was the sign of almost that he was playing everybody. He he left, um, you know, the music industry, I, I believe, twice, you know, first to become a minister. And then he went back, uh, you know, to the church. You know, he, he did this a few times. He would be in music. He'd go to the church, be back in music, go to the church again. And I think you write in the book, like he took a financial hit to, you know, leave the music industry and, you know, become a minister. But he 
would always have these comebacks. And he performed for his whole life, it seemed. So I'm just curious, how do you think he was able to perform for so long and be able to have so many comebacks? I don't even know how he survived as long as he did in the in the condition he did. This man was like, he was like timeless. He was ageless. In his 60s and 70s, he was out there bumping around, jumping up and down on the piano like in the old days. His voice was, you know, a little scratchy by then, but he could still hit those high notes, those, woo, you know, he could do that all day long. And he could play the character of Little Richard so well. And he, let's, I mean, let, let's not, uh, you know, let's not write him off after the 50s as far as his, uh, his recording, because he was the guy who basically got the Beatles on their, on the road to being the Beatles, as I put it, you know, in italics in the book, went from the Beatles to the Beatles. By, by having them open for him in Hamburg, of all places, where the Beatles sort of owned the turf in the early 60s. And there's a whole bunch of there about the Beatles and how he insists that, that uh, Brian Epstein was going to give him control of, of, of the Beatles' finances in America if he got them a record contract and all this kind of stuff. But he made them and, and, and these, these groups in England at the time, the Stones, Jagger loved them. He would sit on the uh, on the front of the stage, just just observing Little Richard when he would do his stuff, and all all the people that were were influenced by him worshipped him so much. John Lennon and Paul McCartney and every they, they worshipped him so much that they took a step back whenever Richard came to town. And in that way, he was it was sort of the same in America, even though the recordings he was making were dismal in the seventies. I mean, he, he went from gospel music. He even made a country album. For reprise records, believe it or not, Warner Reprise, you know, the biggest record company in the world, made an, a country album that they felt was so bad they never released it. It didn't come out until 2002. To the brave and the bold, to the young and the old, people can call about the day. I'm seeking and so, you know, he made tons and tons of recordings and he tried different modes, which I think was terrific because only Little Richard was able to get these contracts and get these movies and TV shows. And he sang, you know, down on the down and out Beverly Hills theme. And then he sang the, the theme from the movie Twins. And he was making these these original recordings that were that, that would help these movies make millions. It's a remarkable story. And then there's the Jimi Hendrix thing. Yeah, Jimi <laughs> Hendrix toured with him. You know, and then with him and he's also sort of his bodyguard. For James a while. Brown was like his fill-in <laughs> on stage. James, he he was the guy who told his manager at the time, Clint Brantley, guy down in Macon, to sign James Brown, who was just coming out of a coming out of a juvenile detention center. You know, nobody knew him. He was just, you know, he was a guy who could, who, you know, could captivate you, but he didn't have any kind of buzz until Richard said, sign this guy. And he wrote the lyrics to please, please me on a, on a napkin in a restaurant, which became James Brown's first hit. Now you go So 
and he had these contacts. He was always sending people. And then when Hendrix came around, the problem was, and everybody knew it at the time, there was no way Little Richard was going uh, was going to accept Jimi Hendrix for long because Jimi would would occupy people's attentions the way only Little Richard wanted to, and that was an obvious. That, you knew that couldn't last. So he was always doing this. He was always invent. He was always finding people, giving them jobs, sending them on their way. He didn't pay them very well. <laughs> that was the one thing about Little Richard. He could. He he, he wasn't very good as a manager. But and then again, he wasn't very good, very good as a as a performer making money because the business never, never would treat him as a top flight star until the late 60s, when he actually outplayed Lennon at the Toronto Peace Festival and then out outshone Janis Joplin at the Atlantic City Music Festival. This is just before Woodstock and Little Richard was still getting top dollar. So. He was an amazing, amazing person. I, I, I only hope I covered a tenth of what he was in the book. You know, in your book, you say, and again, your book is called The Big Life of Little Richard. And you say there were 37 Little Richard singles in the decade of the 1950s that altered America. What songs in your mind really stand out to you when you think about Little Richard? If you take it by measure, if you take it by meter, cadence, chord, structure, they're basically the same. Yeah, they're basically the same song, but in each one there was always that little feel, you know, that 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 little demonstrative tick that only Little Richard could have put into a song, which is really, if you go into music in general, that's what makes a hit song. It's not the lyrics, it's not the voices, it's the little thing that grabs you, the hook. And in that way, of course, Tutti Fruity would have to be the best song maybe ever recorded, as I said, in the book, The Functional Birth of Rock and Roll, because it set in motion all these little vectors that would come about later on, and he never seemed to outplay them. He always seemed to know when to cut back on it, when to pump it up, pump it down, when to stop in the middle of a song. I mean, he was terrific that way. But, you know, Tutti Frutti, Long Tall Sally, slipping and Slide, Rip It Up, heebie-jeebies, all, and Jenny Chan. I mean, I got good golly in this molly. If he hadn't pulled out of business in 58, I think that business would have been very, very different because I think he would have, he would have evolved in a way in the early 60s that would have kept American music vital instead of going over to the, the nonsensical teen idol, the pop idol era. What do you think his greatest legacy was? It, it was that eternal youth it was an eternal, you know, you could listen to it now in your 60s or 70s and say, you know, man, I still feel the way I felt when I heard that song for the first time. And how many how many groups, artists, performers can you say that about? I don't even you can't even say that about the Beatles, because a lot of this, a lot of this stuff sounds dated, very dated now, especially the stuff from 63, 64. Little Richard stuff, which should be the most dated material on Earth still makes you sit up and listen and you never turn it off when it comes on the car radio. You never turn it off. So I think he put that, he put that color, that different kind of color into it. You know, that color of turning back the time without having to be embarrassed about it. You know, he, he made, he made being alive in the fifties, coming of age in the fifties, a thing. People don't realize that teenagers in the fifties were expected to go along with their parents, they were expected to live like like the, like the Cleavers 
or the Andersons on the Father Knows Best. They were expected to live like that. And there was a whole subcard that was waiting for something to deliver them, and it became Little Richard. I've been speaking with Mark Rabowski. He's author of a new biography called The Big Life of Little Richard. Thank you so much for chatting today. Thank you. That was Sound and Vision. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. I'd love to see five more ratings and two more reviews by the end of the week, and I would love to see you help make that happen. And if you have the means, consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this podcast. You can do that at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.